Welcome to the South Fellowship Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Temptation. We're talking about the last part of the Lord's Prayer today, which is, of course, lead me not into temptation. Um, yeah, so I've been on staff here for about four months, four and a half months, and I've had this mission since I got hired to figure something out. I've been investigating something, and I want to know, do British people do the accent when no one else is around? <laughs> and I haven't yet figured it out yet, but I'm going to figure it out if they do or not. Alex told me that I'd be preaching on the Lord's Prayer, and my first thought was, okay, that's um, not that exciting, uh, only because everybody already knows the Lord's Prayer. Like, what else could you pull out of it? Everybody's super familiar with it. We already know all about it, and so I assumed, like, yeah, he's going to give me the Your Kingdom Come part, because I have a tattoo of that right over my heart right here. Sure enough, he did, and uh, he gave me the... Um, uh, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil part. And my, my theory is that he gave that to me because he's like, this guy has so many tattoos. He knows all about giving into temptation and like skirting evil and like, you know, so, so I have that part. So we'll see how it goes. Um, yeah, so I'm really excited to explore it because, of course, as I got into the Lord's Prayer, I started seeing so many things I had not seen before and found out that uh, despite the fact that it's short and really simple, there's so much that we can pull out of it that I, even as a seminary student, hadn't seen before. Uh, for instance, there's temporal movement throughout it. And what I mean by that is it, it talks about, like, give us this day our daily bread. So in other words, that's in the present. We're in the present moment when we talk about the daily bread. And forgive us which refers to things that we've done in the past. So forgive me for everything that happened in the past. And the end, which we're going to look at today, is about what? Lead us. In other words, where we're going in the future. So we have the present, the past, and the future all covered in this prayer. Another thing I discovered uh, as I thought through it more is, what are the first two words of this prayer? It's our Father. And where is he? He's up in heaven. So it starts with... God up in heaven, and then there's movement from his kingdom, his plan, our lives, our provision, and then it moves to the last two words, which is evil one. So there's movement from God up in heaven, everything in between, and then temptation and evil and ending with the evil one at the end. And, and as I thought through it more, I was thinking like about these last two lines, lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. And I was thinking, these are incredibly bleak. Like, if I was, if I was writing the Bible, uh, which, which, whatever. Um, <laughs> if I was writing the Bible, I'd probably have a more optimistic ending. Like, hey, let's look toward the future and let's have, like, hope and God give us strength and give me joy and happiness. But he doesn't. He ends it with a warning. And this is something Jesus does in many of his teachings. It kind of starts off optimistically and ends with a serious warning. And that's exactly what this is. It's a serious warning. And he doesn't say, hey, here's your hope. Here's your, it's, it's a serious warning. Lead us not into temptation. And so I've I spent a lot of time thinking about temptation and evil. 
And these are themes that we see all throughout the Bible, especially the idea of not even going near temptation. So in, in Proverbs 5 through 7, we have the analogy of the adulterous woman. Of course, it doesn't just have to be a woman. It could be any temptation, um, adulterous man, adulterous woman. And in Proverbs, it says, don't even go down the street that she lives on. Because if you go down the street where she lives, you're going to go by her house. And then she's going to come out of her house and she's going to say, hey, my husband isn't home. Why don't you come in? So you avoid this by not even putting yourself in the street where she lives. Or we look at the very first temptation in the entire Bible, which is Adam and Eve. These people that lived in a garden, a beautiful garden, they had everything, and God gave them one very simple instruction, don't eat from the fruit. And when I was growing up, and I'm sure a lot of us had this similar mentality when you read that story, it's like, gee, those idiots, they ate from the fruit. They ate from the one tree they weren't supposed to. I wouldn't have done that. They screwed us all over. But the problem is, the story of Adam and Eve isn't just a story about two people in a garden in the Middle East somewhere. The story of Adam and Eve is a story about you and about me and about us. It's a story about all of us every time that we know that there's something that we're not supposed to do and we do it anyway. Or a story of something we know we are supposed to do and we don't do it. Because how many of us have ever done that? So in other words, we're all the idiots. <laughs> who disobey God, who give in to temptation. And for them, all it took was two simple questions. Did God really say that? Will you really die? And we get this all the time. Every single time we're tempted, it comes as this very subtle, very alluring thing that draws us in. And we're like, oh, this, uh, I'm not, I, God probably didn't really mean that. What is death anyway? Jeez, you know, we don't know. But uh, a couple years ago, I was working out in the gym, and I was talking to this high schooler, and, and I was a youth pastor at a different church back then, and this high schooler, he's talking to me about his girlfriend, and he goes, yeah, she's, she's like kind of a Christian, she's like a new Christian, but I'm a really strong Christian, but I think it'll be okay, I think she's like growing, and, and I'm really strong, and, and in my head, I'm just thinking the whole time, like, that must be nice to be a strong Christian, I don't know what that's like, because the... the the, the problem with that mentality is that there's no such thing as a strong Christian or a weak Christian. There's no such thing, there's no like hierarchy of like, oh, he's really strong, oh, look at him. Or you're like, oh, look at all those weak Christians down there, I'm glad I'm not like them. Like, there were people like that in the Bible and Jesus did not treat them very kindly. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. If you're a Christian, then you're a Christian. And that means that you're weak. And that means that you're vulnerable. And as I was studying the Lord's Prayer, I realized that weakness and vulnerability is the heart of this prayer. From the very first words, is we address God as our Father. So that means we're putting ourselves in the position of children. And if you're a young child, do you provide your own bread, your own food? No, you're entirely dependent on your parents to give it to you. Your parents correct you. They forgive you when you mess up. You're not living according to your own plans when you're like three, four, five years old. You're living according to the will of your parents. 
And lastly, we depend on our parents to lead us not into a dangerous place, not into temptation and things that will mess up their lives, but we trust the parents to lead the child into safe places in ways that won't give them temptation and give them bad habits and destroy their own lives. Because that's essentially what we're talking about when we talk about evil and temptation is destruction of human life. A lot of people have taken issue with the phrasing of this, though. Lead us not into temptation. Well, does God lead us into temptation? In other places in the New Testament, it specifically says God does not tempt us with evil. So what does it mean when it says God, like, don't lead me into evil? In fact, they took it so seriously that uh, Pope Francis, just three years ago, changed the official Catholic translation uh, from lead us not into temptation. Pause. There it is. Lead us not to temptation. He changed the official Catholic translation to do not let us fall into temptation. And the reason that he gave for this was it is not a good translation because it speaks of a God who induces temptation. I am the one who falls. It's not him pushing me into temptation to then see how I have fallen. A father doesn't do that. A father helps you to get up immediately. It's Satan who leads us into temptation. That's his department. Other translators uh, actually alter the wording a little bit so it says, lead me over temptation. Because I'm sure that all of us can relate that if we go through temptation, we inevitably end up under temptation. We end up being crushed by the weight of it. Because how many of us have been in that position where it's like, oh, there's a couple bucks right there. Nobody would miss that. And you feel this crushing weight. Like, oh, I'm home alone right now. I could open up the computer. Nobody would ever know. And it's, it's not an easy thing. It's not a simple thing to be tempted. In church, we often talk about it like it's kind of this, oh, oh, you get tempted. Oh, just pray to the Lord. But no, it's like a crushing weight. So that's why these translators sometimes instead translate it, lead us over temptation. So we get to the other side without ending up crushed by our own sin. Some of you, if you're more philosophically minded, might also be thinking then, okay, then where did evil come from in the first place? This is known as a theodicy. It's, it's uh, one of the oldest questions of evil. And that's if God is all good and everything exists in God and he created everything and there's no darkness in him, then he made Satan. And Satan is the one who tempts us. Therefore, did God then ultimately tempt us? Did God make evil? Is God the one who does put evil in our lives? Where did evil come from? And I think that asking this question kind of misses the point. Other people might phrase it like, uh, well, evil is everything that God is not. Like wherever there's evil, God isn't there. And it's like, okay, but we also say that God's omnipresent, that God is everywhere. So how can you possibly have a place where there is no God there? Uh, Bishop Berkeley in the 1700s said, everything exists in the constant thinking mind of God. In other words, if he were to stop thinking about it, it would stop existing. So how can you have something exist outside the presence of God? Again, this misses the point. I think the better question is not, 
does evil exist? Why does evil exist? Um, where did it come from? I think the better question is actually, what do we do now? What do we do in response to this evil? What do we do since we live in a world where we have the Holocaust and we have the Rwandan genocides and we have uh, famine in many parts of Africa right now? And even in our own hometown, we live in Littleton, Colorado, where we had Columbine, where we have teenagers shooting teenagers. We don't need to be convinced that evil exists. A better question is not where did it come from. A better question is how do we respond? What do we do in light of this world where there is such darkness? When I was growing up on Cape Cod, uh, we had this tradition. Um, I don't know if a lot of other people have this tradition, uh, but Maybe, okay, we'll find out. Um, when you're in a car and you're driving along and you come to some train tracks, what do you do when you go over the train tracks? Lift your feet. Okay, okay, you grew up on Cape Cod too? <laughs> or is this like a universal thing? Last, in the last service, somebody said, hold your breath. And I was like, that's, that's tunnels, not... Um. <laughs> so... So to this day, I'm 30 and a half years old, and to this day, whenever I go over train tracks in my car, I always go like, you know, or if there's other people in the car, I'm like, lift up your feet. Or if it's, if I'm like on a date and I'm driving with a girl in the car, I'll always just suddenly be like. <laughs> so she's not like, what's wrong with this guy? But if you ask us, and like whenever I tell people like, lift up your feet, they always do it. And then afterward, they say, why do we do that? And I always say, it's because if you don't lift up your feet when you go over the train tracks, inevitably, your toes will go through the floorboards of the car, get stuck in the train tracks, and the train will come and run you over. <laughs> That's Cape Cod logic for you. So here's the thing. I don't know anybody who has gotten their toes stuck in the train tracks because they didn't lift their feet up. And when I lift my feet up, I don't actually believe that, a tr that, that I'll get stuck and the train will run me over, right? I don't actually believe that. But I do it simply because it's a habit, simply because it's kind of like a rote memorization thing. And I wonder if when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we kind of like actually believe the first several parts of it. We actually believe that there's God up in heaven who we're addressing. We believe we want to see his kingdom come to earth and we want to make that happen and we want his will to happen and not our own. And we believe that we want food to eat. We want God to provide for us. And we believe that we have messed up and we have wronged people and people have wronged us and we need to forgive them. But we get to the last part and we don't actually really believe it's going to happen. We say it because we're supposed to. It's more of a rote memorization thing than a, I actually believe evil will come upon me if I don't say this last part of the prayer. It's like we're lifting up our feet going over train tracks. And I think a better mentality we should have when we come to this last part of the prayer, God, deliver me from evil, looks more like this. This is how badly we should want to get out of the clutches of evil. Um, if, you, <laughs> if you Google Easter Bunny kids crying, like I do all the time, then um, there's like hundreds of these pictures. I was amazed by how many there are. I was also amazed that somebody at some point thought, hey, it, this Easter Bunny is a good idea. 
let's, let's put kids on his lap. Kids will love this. Like, what if we had that face as we're, as we're praying, God, deliver me from evil. Get me off the lap of this evil bunny. <laughs> that one's just reaching for it. <laughs> That's the worst one. We're going to talk about serial killers in a minute, and I think this was... Uh... <laughs> but seriously, what if we had that mentality when we thought about evil? If we said, God, deliver me. And the fact that we don't pray that part of the prayer intensely means that we are in the minority of human history. Because all throughout human history, you've had totalitarian regimes. You've had witch doctors putting voodoo spells on you. You've had neighboring tribes which could invade you at any moment and decimate you and all your family. And we live in a relatively comfortable society where we get to say, eh, deliver me from evil. And don't really give it a second thought. Don't really give it the, the weight that it really deserves. But here, I think, when we think about Nazis and, and, and external evils, I think here is where the two clauses of this prayer converge. Because every single one of us has the capacity for incredible evil inside of us. And the scary thing is... Um, if you, if you listen to Jordan Peterson, he's a, he's a philosopher, psychologist, thinker. He would always uh, start off his lectures when he taught at Harvard. Every single semester, he would start off by saying, um, if, every, if every one of you in this classroom was in Germany in the 1930s, you would be a Nazi. And everybody says, no. No, I wouldn't. And it's because... Inside of our own minds, we have this image of ourselves because we watch so many World War II movies and Nazi movies and Quentin Tarantino movies, and, and we have this mentality that, no, I'd be Schindler. That would be me. I'd be the one delivering everybody out of, you know, uh, the clutches of the Holocaust. I wouldn't be the one going along with it. I wouldn't be complicit in this incredible evil. But the problem with that mentality is that 90% of the people in Germany were either Nazis, Nazi sympathizers, or did nothing to stop them. So when we pray this prayer, deliver me from evil, it's more along the lines of like, like the frog boiling in a pot, it's slowly and slowly and slowly, and then you can only look backwards afterward and realize what was actually happening. And all along, you were just going along with it. So when we pray this, it's, God, deliver me from evil, even if it doesn't seem that evil to me right now. So we're going to do a little experiment right now. There's three candidates, and they're all running for office. And we in this room get to decide which one we elect to uh, kind of run our church. Sorry, Alex. Um, <laughs> candidate number one is partially paralyzed from polio. He has hypertension. He's anemic and suffers from an array of serious illnesses. He lies if it suits his purpose and consults astrologists on his politics. He cheats on his wife, chain smokes, and drinks too many martinis. That's our first candidate. Uh, people said of candidate number one, he's a functioning alcoholic. Uh, candidate number two is overweight. He's already lost three elections. He suffers from depression, has had two heart attacks. He's impossible to work with and smokes cigars nonstop. 
And every night when he goes to bed, he drinks incredible amounts of champagne, ka, I still don't know how to say that word. You guys paying attention to who knew how to say that? Port, whiskey, and adds two sleeping pills before dozing off. Candidate number three is a highly decorated war hero. He treats women with respect. He loves animals and art. He never smokes and only has a beer on rare occasions. So question, who's voting for candidate number one in here? Oh, wow, he got it, dang, okay. If you were not gonna vote for candidate number one, you discarded Franklin D. Roosevelt. Candidate number two, who's voting for candidate number, okay, you guys, stop. You already, no, stop, you're cheating. You guys figured out my trick. If you like candidate number two, you just elected Winston Churchill. Who likes candidate number three? Jeez, okay, you guys were in the first service. That doesn't count. If you like candidate number three, you just elected Adolf Hitler. So you can see how evil doesn't always appear as evil on the surface. Sometimes when we pray, God deliver me from evil, it's evil that I don't even know about because it doesn't look that evil to me. In 1945, in a separate part of the world, there was a man named Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and he lived in the Soviet Union. And in 1945, he sent a letter to one of his friends in which he critiqued Joseph Stalin. Somehow this letter got intercepted by the Soviet Union, and uh, he was sentenced to eight years in the gulag. And if you don't know what the gulag is, it's a labor camp where you're subject to like some of the worst conditions on planet Earth that human beings could do to one another. So he's working in this terrible, terrible labor camp for eight years. He survives, and he comes out and spends the next decade writing his like world-changing book called The Gulag Archipelago. And a clip from that book is right here. It's one of the most famous lines probably in the whole 1900s. He says, if only it were all so simple. And remember, this is coming from a man who suffered some of the worst, like, violence, worst conditions put on him by other human beings possible. And this is what he concluded. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? The line dividing good and evil cuts down the heart of every human being. In other words, it's not like there's bad people out there and then there's good people in here. Because the problem with all these lists is we always say like, oh yeah, there's evil in the world. There's genocides in Africa, there's Boko Haram, there's ISIS, there's the Holocaust, there's the gulags, and even more close to home maybe, we think, oh, those Democrats, they do A, B, and C. Or maybe you think, oh, those conservatives, they do X, Y, and Z, I can't believe that, they're so evil, how could they possibly hold on to those beliefs because they're bad? But the problem with these lists is it's always them. It's always the other people who are evil. It's always them out there doing the bad things, and I would never do that. And the problem is, 
We have just as much evil in our hearts. We have the capacity for evil that they do. 90% of Germany was not just evil murderers. They went along with it. They were complicit. They were apathetic. Um, In 1971, there was these things called the Stanford Prison Experiments held at Stanford University. If you're not familiar with these, what they did is they took two random groups of students who volunteered to be part of the study, and they divide the group of students in half. These are not prisoners. They're not criminals. They're just regular students at Stanford. And they said, this half of the students, you're going to be prison guards. And this half of the students, you're going to be prisoners. And we're just going to put you in this facility and see what happens. Average students, not crazy, bad people. Within six days, they had to shut down the experiment because within six days, about half of the prison guards had become sadistic psychopaths. And they were just being violent and aggressive and doing humiliating, torturous things to the other random half of the students who were playing the part of prisoners. But you know what each one of us is thinking right now? That wouldn't be me. I wouldn't be that. But the line dividing good and evil cuts down the center of each and every one of our hearts. Even um, Charles Manson, when he was in prison later in his life, he realized people were fascinated by him. This horrific murderer, the serial killer, he realized like people are making movies about me and writing books about me. They're fascinated by me. And he had this quote to say, he said, look straight at me and you see yourself. Maybe he lived out some of the things that deep inside our hearts we wish we were capable of doing because the same evil is inside of us as is in him. So when we pray this prayer, Lead me not into temptation. Don't even let me go down the street where temptation lives because I might be capable of becoming evil. So maybe we could add the word, deliver me from becoming the evil one. Keep me from becoming the one that people are scared of, the one who does evil acts. Because remember, it doesn't happen all at once. It happens when we go down the street. And then we go down the driveway and we go up to the house where temptation lives. And before we know it, we are doing evil things. We've all been tempted. We've all given into temptation. And are we going to keep letting it off the hook? Having a little place in our lives where we're walking in step with the spirit over here, but over here we're just having a little bit of sin and it's okay. And we're letting evil have a little place in our lives. Are we going to keep doing that? The verb for deliver, deliver me from evil, is like an aggressive or a violent word. You could also say, snatch me from evil. It's like we're on an icy hill and we're sliding down, and the only way we can stop is if God snatches us up and pulls us to safety because we can't do it on our own. So will we be like those kids on the Easter Bunny's laps saying, God, please deliver me from evil. Snatch me. Get me off of here because I can't stand to be in here. I'm going to destroy myself. I'm going to destroy everybody around me. I'm going to destroy God's creation. I'm going to be destructive because I can't escape evil myself. Evil isn't just what's out there. Evil is also what's in here. I had this... uh, 
this teacher when I was in high school at a Christian high school. And one day in class, he stopped teaching and he started preaching. And if you've gone to a Christian school, you may have had teachers like that. Where he's teaching us about the book of Acts. And at some point, he kind of went off script and he just started to say, you guys don't take sin seriously enough. Sin is going to destroy your life. And he grabbed one of the desks like this, and he starts banging it, and he's like, you do not realize the power of sin if you let it just get a foothold in your life, and then it takes a little more and a little more, and you guys are not taking it seriously enough. And then he literally threw the, the desk across the room, and we were all like, okay, I'll take sin seriously. And <laughs> I don't know how many of us actually did, but I'll always remember that image of him taking sin so seriously. But the thing about being a Christian is this. It's not just that we try really hard not to sin. It's not just that we follow all the rules and we have this checklist and, and then we're good and then we won't slip into evil because that's how the Pharisees thought that you delivered yourself from evil. The Pharisees thought that if you do X, Y, and Z, then you'll be good. If you follow these rules, God will deliver you. But the whole Lord's prayer is from this position of weakness, of begging God, deliver me from myself. Deliver me from evil. Provide for me. Forgive me. But God, I know that I'm not strong enough to deliver myself. So don't let me do those bad things because I want to. And that's why Jesus has come. Jesus has defeated that evil once and for all. We trust in him. We trust that when we cry out to him, he can deliver us, that he does hear us. And we pray that prayer now before we get into some temptation, we say, don't let me go down that street. But we also cry out to him when we are tempted. In 1 Corinthians, it says, he has not let us be tempted beyond what is common to man. But when we are tempted, he will provide us a way through it so that we do have that escape, so that we don't destroy ourselves, so that we don't destroy other people. It's not in our own strength that we escape evil and temptation. It's only by calling on God, calling on Jesus, Jesus who suffered in our place, Jesus who suffered in order to destroy sin and death and evil once and for all. So we call out to him. He delivers us from evil. He delivers us from ourselves. So let me pray for us, South. Jesus, I thank you that you have come, that you are victorious Jesus, we're not the ones who are victorious. We're not the ones who are strong. We're weak and we really need your strength. So Jesus, come and deliver us. Save us from ourselves. Save us from external evils. Jesus, don't let us go near temptation. Lord, keep us far from it. Jesus, we rely on you, we depend on you, and we love you. It's in your name we pray all these things. Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks again for listening and have a great rest of your day.